text for this morning comes from John 1, 35 through 51. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And Philip, now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? <coughs> Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, I'm the Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Lord is mm -hmm. No, Father, we praise you for how you have spoken in your word and how you have instructed us infallibly and sufficiently, most of all so that we would know you, most of all so that we would know you. And so we ask, Father, this morning that you would teach us about Christ, teach us who he is, and cause us to realize how desperately we need him and how blessed we are to have him. And Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you as Savior. They're trusting in their own works, trusting in, in their own ability to understand your word or to to keep self from sin. Oh, Father, I pray that this morning they would repent and find that their only hope is Christ. And Christ is all that they have, all that they need. Oh, Father, I pray that they would turn to you and confess that the only thing they have to offer you is their sin and find in Christ all the righteousness they need to be reconciled with their God. Lord, we praise you for this time and we ask you to bless it in ways that we may never understand or know. Be glorified in it, we pray, Father, in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, before I start the preaching part, let me just say, it's good to be home. Um, we went to Ukraine, and um, Ramona and Alex actually got to go to Odessa. The rest of us were in a different village, um, way north of there, called um, Busvika. And had a wonderful time ministering in the village churches there and supporting the church planters and uh, deeply involved in ministry uh, almost every waking minute. If we weren't asleep, we were ministering in some way. It was one of the best trips. I've been on a lot of these trips. This was one of the best ones, and we can't wait to share that with you. We don't have a date for that yet, but we'll get that to you as soon as we can. It'll be a Sunday evening, and it'll be a, a, a blessed, blessed time. But this morning we return to the Gospel of John. And all God's people said, as much as I love Christmas and all of that, it tends to be a distraction. I, I would just as soon take John Calvin's approach and never recognize a holiday, just keep pressing through the text, especially a text like this, the Gospel of John. John, my oh my, what, a, what glory there is to discover here about the person, nature, and work of Jesus Christ. And so returning to our study, you may remember that several weeks ago when I had the opportunity to speak last, we 
got into this passage, and I fully intended to talk to you about at least three characteristics of Jesus Christ, three excellencies of Jesus Christ that are worthy of note. Um, But when I got to the first one, the accessibility of Jesus Christ, I realized this was such a big issue that we spent the entire time just on the accessibility of Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to re-preach all of that, but I will make mention of it this morning. This morning, however, I I just want to get back into the same text and kind of pick up where we left off. This is more than just John introducing us to the disciples. This is more than a text about how Jesus and one by one with his disciples had a meet and greet each time and introduced us to these men who would become his apostles. There's much more here. There's much more here. If we're not careful, however, we might just skim over this passage and really noting nothing more than the simple narrative and miss what John really wants you to see. Yes, Jesus is calling his first disciples, but more importantly, John is setting on display for us the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. And why is he doing that? He's doing that because, as he says at the end of his book in chapter 20, that the purpose of the whole gospel is this, that you might come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's his purpose. And if you read the Gospel of John without understanding that purpose, then you're just going to skim over the best parts, which is what we do. Now, it's important also to remember that every, con- every time we come to Scripture, maybe later today you're going to open up the Bible and read it just for your own personal time with God. Maybe tomorrow morning many of you will open up the Word of God to read it. What question are you asking when you approach the Word of God? And some of you are saying, I don't ask it any questions, I just read. Let me encourage you to ask it questions. And here's the number one question. Well, first of all, let me tell you what questions not to ask. Don't ask first. These are good questions, but don't ask these first. Don't ask, God, how does this apply to my marriage? God, how does this apply to parenting? How does this apply to running my business? How does this apply to my dealings with my unbelieving parents or family members who are hostile to me and don't like me? Those are all good questions. Bible has answers for all of those questions, but they are not the ultimate question. The ultimate question is this. What does this text tell me about God? Listen, that's what's going to be the ballast in your ship when the storms become rough. When you start facing difficulty and hostility in your Daily life, when the world seems to be turning upside down, what you need is not the five rules or four rules of communication. You don't need ten principles on how to make your marriage better. What you need is Christ. What you need is God. What you need is a knowledge of God that's weighty enough to keep your little boat upright. That's what you need. And so you're not going to get a lot of pablum this morning about all that other stuff. We are here to learn what John wants to teach, and that is Christ. Christ. Now, before we get into the details, let me just take a minute to remind, remind us about the first question and how it's kind of proceeded here, how John kind of takes it, uh, to, to starts off and then moves forward. The first excellency that we see in this text is one that we've already discussed, but I've already mentioned it. It is the accessibility of Christ. Now, I've got a lot of notes here. I'm not going to use any of them because we don't have time. Um, but here's what happened. John the Baptist, standing by the river. Jesus had already come. John already said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin in the world. The day ends. Next day comes. John the Baptist is there by the river. He's got two disciples next to him, Andrew. And we surmised that the other one was John because whoever it was had intimate knowledge of what transpired after that, and that was John. So Andrew and John are standing next to John the Baptist. They're disciples of John the Baptist. They'd been there all morning, no doubt. Jesus starts leaving, and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples decide, that's our opportunity, I think, to go 
and talk to this man and find out who he really is. And they go to talk to Jesus. And as they're coming up behind him, he spins around and he sees them and he smiles at them, I think. I'm just adding that. It's not in the Greek or anything. But um, he looks at them and, and he says, what do you want? And they say, um, where are you staying? And his answer, come and see. Come with me. It's not sufficient for us just to have a little time here where you can ask a couple questions and I can be on my way. Come with me. And they went and they spent the entire day with Jesus. Jesus, Andrew, John. No one else. No one else. And it absolutely changed their lives. And we spent that whole message talking about the accessibility of Jesus, who made himself accessible to everyone. The woman with the issue of blood, the ruler of the synagogue, the centurion, the leper, the blind, the lame, the deaf, the demon-possessed. He made himself accessible to everyone. And the whole point of that, I think, the takeaway from that is Jesus is accessible to you. God in Christ is accessible to you. Use that accessibility. Part of the the whole message of the book of Hebrews is draw near, draw near, draw near because of what Christ has done for you. Draw near. Don't shrink back. Draw near. He is accessible. So if you seek him, you'll find him. If you ask for him, he'll answer. If you knock, he will open the door. He stands at the door, Revelation says, and he's the one knocking. Can I come into fellowship? You know why he has to knock? Because we're so insensitive to this. We're all wrapped up in so many other things in this life rather than fellowship with Christ. And that's his chief priority. Not that he needs us, but he knows that we desperately need him. Accessibility of Christ is huge. And I'm not going to preach that whole sermon over again. Let's move to the second one. Number two, not just the accessibility of Jesus we see in this text, but we also see the assertiveness of Jesus. Look at verses 40 through 43, uh, 40 through 42. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, you shall be called Peter, which means, I'm sorry, you you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, here's, here's the point that I want you to see here, and I think John wants you to see. Jesus was no responder. He was not a passive religious type. Jesus was assertive. He was more than just a little assertive. He was totally proactive in everything that he did. Time and again, we find Jesus driving forward, plunging headlong into the Father's purposes without being encumbered by sentiment or tradition or any kind of cultural protocol. While it's true that he came to serve rather than be served, the reality is that we always need to keep in mind is this. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. So don't be surprised by his assertiveness. Rather, when you see it, step back and say, I get that. He's Lord. He gets to do what I don't get to do because he's Lord and I'm not. Yes, he's a servant. He came to serve and not to be served, but he came as Lord. He is king of kings and rulers of, ruler of all men, even while he was serving And one of the ways this becomes most apparent is in how he entered into a relationship with his disciples. And this is what John is showing to us. It's not just the fact that he entered into relationship with these men, but how he did it that reveals the glory of Christ. You talk about his accessibility, that's wonderful, that's warm, that's inviting. But his assertiveness, (laughs) that's a different thing. Because you know what? As Lord, he isn't going to ask permission to get into your life. He's not going to say, hey, tell me some things that I can hold you accountable for. 
He's going to say, hey, hey, what are you doing? And you know what? This is amazing. When he first meets Peter, when he first meets Peter, this is so evident. And it's so contrary to what we normally hear in terms of how Jesus is presented. Often when the gospel is being preached in evangelistic meetings, it's done in a manner that would almost have us believe that Jesus is kind of like an older man sitting at a bus stop, hat in hand, hoping that somebody will come along and accept him and believe in him and ask him, maybe, could you disciple me? (laughs) That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not how he's presented in any of the Gospels. The first thing Jesus does when he meets Peter, you ready for this? First thing he does is change his name. Peter says, uh, hi, I'm Simon. (laughs) Jesus says, not anymore. (laughs) That bold? Is that a little assertive? From now on, I will call you Peter. He was good with that, apparently. As far as we can tell, I looked this up to make sure. This is, these are the first words, the first words that we have Jesus saying to Peter. I looked in the other Gospels. They all, every other uh, rendering of Jesus' communication with Peter, always after this. Hi, my name is Cephas, not anymore. Your name is Peter now. From here on, I will call you Peter. In fact, it's more than that. There's, there's more depth to this than even that. Peter's original name was Simon, son of John, or Jonas comes from the word Jonah. And some commentators look at that and say, boy, that seems to be fitting. You have, have Jonah, this rogue, loose cannon of a prophet who decides, you know, he, he doesn't like God's plan. He's going to do things his own way. And now you have Peter, and the parallels there are uncanny. And, and, and some will say, you know, maybe what Jesus was doing is saying, I know you kind of fall in the line of Jonah. Not anymore. I am going to do something with your life that you can't imagine. And it's going to hurt. And you're going to love it. Simon, son of John. And Jesus told him, you will be called Peter. It's important to note here the future passive of the term, you will be called. Jesus is not just telling Cephas what he intends to call him. He is telling Cephas what he intends to do with him. He is revealing a plan. At their first introduction, Jesus made it apparent that he already had a wonderful plan for Peter's life. The name Peter, his new name, means rock. Petros. There's a place in Jordan called Petra. It's that place, you've seen it, I know, because most of you have watched Indiana Jones in that third movie where they they ride their horses through that what do they call it, the, the Valley of the Crescent Moon or whatever it is, the canyon, and they go and that temple is carved into the stone. That's a real place. It's called Petra. And the reason it's called Petra is Petra means rock. This is what Jesus is calling Peter. I will call you. You shall be called rock. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because if there is anything that becomes clear about the life of Peter in the Gospels is that he was anything but a rock. He was impetuous. He was undependable. He was impulsive. He was self-centered. He was a loose cannon. He was this type A alpha male kind of running amok. Give that guy authority. We're all in trouble. Honestly, he was not fit to lead. Jesus had a plan for his life. He planned on transforming this relatively useless young man into something great. And you know why? Because he's God. Because he's Lord. Is he the accessible Jesus? Yes. But beware. 
when you get access to Jesus, first thing he's going to do, change your life. It's going to start showing you things in your life that need to, need to be thrown out. Habits, ways of thinking, all kinds of things that don't align themselves with the glory of his Father. Jesus fully intended to change the life of Simon Peter. And you know what? He, intu- he intends to do the same thing with you and with me. The term we typically use for this is sanctification, more More specifically, progressive sanctification. This is the long process that God engages with us in transforming sinners like us into the image of Christ, the likeness of Christ. If you're a child of God by grace through faith, then God has an amazing plan for your life. Please don't go to unbelievers and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Not until they know Christ. The only thing that awaits them eternally is judgment. They must repent as you repented, as I repented. And, not, and that was not of ourselves, right? Even that was a gift of God. It's the long process of transforming sinners into the likeness of Christ. That's what God has plans to do with you. He intends to hammer you, chisel you, squeeze you, mold you, And do everything he needs to do through the various experiences and trials and difficulties and blessings and temptations of life to conform you to the image of Jesus. He wants you to think like Jesus, talk like Jesus. He wants you to have the same desires as Jesus, the same ambitions as Jesus. And if that's going to happen, it's going to require change. It's going to require change. And you know what? Just as an aside... It was never God's intention that you do that on your own. It's always been God's intention that that process take place within the local body of Christ, where there's real accountability, where there's conviction of sin, where there are brothers and sisters who are willing to be honest with you and say to you, I love you, but what you just said, that's not right. What I just saw you do, that's not right. I love you. And you need to repent. God has always intended for the process of sanctification to happen within his body, which is the church. And by the way, the Apostle Paul explains this over and over and over again in his writings. And here's one that you're familiar with. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. We love that, right? We love that. To those uh, who love God and who, to those who are the called according to his purpose, you've got to ask yourself, what's the good? What's the good that he intends? And the good is this, verse 29, it is to be conformed to the image of his son. And you know what? That, that good cause that God has may not be a cause of rescue. He may not bail you out of your problems. He may not send the unexpected check in the mail It may be that God has planned for you a period of suffering, which is why James, the Lord's half-brother, wrote this, the very first thing after giving his introduction and saying, blessed, you know, be the Lord Jesus Christ, which is amazing for his brother to say that. But the very first thing he says is, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter what? Various trial. Why? Because God is squeezing you, stretching you, molding you, conforming you to the image of Christ. And so you see, beloved, even before you ever met Jesus, he knew you as he knew Peter, and he had a plan for your life. And by the way, this is nothing new. This was true even of David. David understood this back in the Old Testament, Psalm 139, where he says this. David, in that fat, you should memorize that chapter. It's glorious. But in the middle of it, David says this, in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not Yet one of them. God had a plan. God had a plan. And he was assertive to come and take control of his life to fulfill that plan. No wonder Jesus could be so assertive. 
He knew everything about Peter's future. He knew every success, every failure, every dumb idea he would come up with, every selfish impulse. He knew every sin Peter would ever commit. And yet, upon meeting Jesus, declared this word of hope. You, Simon, shall be called Peter. It's interesting kind of to trace through that whenever you see Simon kind of blowing it, whenever he's kind of doing his own thing, uh, Jesus would say, Simon, Simon. Whenever he did something that was marvelous, he'd say, Peter. Just chew on that for a while. What I want you to see, beloved, is this is the assertive Christ. He is in your face. He is in your life. He is in your heart. And his assertiveness appears again and again when when he meets the other disciples. And, and, And Philip is next. Look at verse 43. The next day, here we are, day one, day two, day three. This is day four. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee and found Philip. And Jesus said to Philip, follow me. Follow me. So here is Philip's opportunity to meet the one that the others have already found out is the Christ. And so once again, we find Jesus is not sitting around hat in hand, hoping that somebody will notice him and be attracted to him. No, upon meeting Philip, he simply says this, rank yourself under me. Be my student, be my follower, be my disciple. Come and attach yourself to me and be servant to the Lord. That's pretty bold. That's pretty assertive. It'd be totally inappropriate if this were just another sinful man doing this. If I were to do this with someone, you would have every reason to scoff and to walk away and and reject me. On the other hand, however, it's perfectly appropriate if the person is doing this happens to be God. He's God. He's the Word. He's the Creator. He's the light who is the source of life itself. He is deity made flesh. He is Jesus Christ. And at the end of his ministry, he would tell, he would tell the disciples this. Remember, you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. I am Lord. I was Lord the day I met you and changed your name. I was Lord the day I met you and invited you to submit your whole life to me, and you did. I was Lord over every act of ministry, And every piece of sweet fruit that was born from that ministry, I am Lord over. And this is how a relationship with Christ begins for everyone. He's not just sitting around at the bus stop hoping someone will choose him. Paul explains that God chose us, Ephesians 1-4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. This is our hope. Not that our relationship is based on our whimsical inclination to embrace some religious leader, but that God in Christ came to us. He changed our name. And he took control of our lives and made us into something that we would never have become otherwise. Do you know why you're here today? Either because God has done that in your life or because God wants to do that in your life and is in the process. The question is, will you submit to that? Will you submit to that? Will you rank yourself under the Son of God? And so here's what we see in John 1 so far. We see the accessibility of Christ. We see the assertiveness of Christ. Here's another one. You ready for this? The omniscience of Christ. 
the omniscience of Christ. So notice here the progression that's taking place. Andrew comes with John and he meets Jesus. He runs to his brother, Simon Peter. By the way, the other thing about uh, this Peter character is a, a lot of times the disciples didn't know what to call him, so they just called him both. Simon Peter. Um, which is it? Pick one. Jesus uh, finds Philip, who then tells Nathaniel, and the news about Jesus begins to spread as one person shares what they have seen and heard with other people that they know. And you know what, beloved? This is how the church has grown since its inception. No need, no need for spending a lot of money, coming up with some great strategic program. Not saying that those are bad. Not all of them are. Some of them are. But here's how the word of God is spread. This is how the gospel is spread. This is how relationships with Jesus are spread. This is how how it's spreading in China. This is how it's spreading in Iran. Not with any big program, but just one person telling another, you won't believe what happened to me. You won't believe what I've seen and what I've heard. And that's the process. And you should know that in the other three Gospels here, when we talk about Nathaniel, you may not find him in the other Gospels because his name there is Bartholomew, same guy. And so let's watch what happens when Jesus meets him. Verse 44, and we'll go through verse 49. Verse 44, and Philip was from Bethsaida in the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, watch this. Now remember, keep in mind what John's purpose is for his Gospel. Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Let's just stop there for a minute. If there was any doubt in Philip's that Philip's meeting with Jesus had profoundly affected his life and transformed him. Verse 45 puts it to rest. He had already heard the testimony of Andrew and John and then Simon Peter. And now Philip says this, we, we, who's the we? Me and Peter and Andrew and John, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Who's that? The Christ, the Christ, not a Christ, the Christ. We have found the Messiah. One short encounter with Jesus and Philip's whole life was transformed. He'd never be the same again. However, when Nathaniel hears the nudes, he's a little skeptical. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I've heard that before. Um, Growing up in New Jersey, you know, can anything good come out of New Jersey? Okay, that's not funny, so don't even say that to me after the service, all right? (laughs) But that was Nathaniel's perspective. I mean, anything good in Nazareth? I mean, what good thing has come out of Nazareth? And I love Philip's answer. Watch this. How does Philip respond? Apologetics? Some kind of... Memorize gospel presentation? Nope. He picks up on what he probably heard from, Philip, I mean, from Andrew and John was Jesus' first response to them. Come and see. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. Come and see. Beloved, here's the simplest gospel imitation in all of Scripture. Come and see. It's so easy. It's so easy. We should not hesitate to say it when we're speaking to unbelieving friends and neighbors and workers. I mean, so many people over the last few years here at Calvary Bible Church who have come to know Christ have come to know him because somebody in the workplace or somebody walked into their shop or to their dental office or, or, or wherever there was some seemingly chance meeting between two people, and one of them got talking to God, and the other one was somewhat interested and asked questions, and the other one said, what? Just, why, don't you come to, why don't you come to my house for dinner? 
Or why don't you just come, come with us to church on Sunday? Come and see. Our counselors now uh, here at the church are, are reading a book written by a lady, and I forget the name of the university, the name, uh, 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 this, this lady who was the chairman of the Department of Gay Studies, Gay and Lesbian Studies, and um, obviously an unbeliever. And she had written an article, and this Presbyterian pastor had read the article and wrote her a letter and said, read your article. It's very intriguing. I've got questions. What do you think about coming over to my house for dinner, meet my wife, my children, and we'll sit down and talk? And she took the letter. She didn't know what to do with it. She was dividing it up. Hate mail, love mail. Hate mail, love mail. And this one, this one's just weird mail. (laughs) (laughs) What do I do with this? So she takes it to her colleague and says, what should I do with this invitation? And, and the lady said, are you kidding? This would be tremendous for your research. <laughs> You'll actually get to go into the home of a homophobe. Take him up on it. She did. She walks into his house. They have a little meet and greet. And it uh, doesn't take her long. She looks around and she confesses. Um, this is the most intact functional family I've ever seen in my life. I got to know more. Today, she's no longer at that institution. She is a mother, and her husband is a Presbyterian pastor. You know how she came to know Christ? Some bold pastor wrote her a letter and said, come and see. Let's get cut past all the theory, all the polemic. Come and see. If you don't like what you see, I can't help you. But you'll see Jesus. And so there's our gospel presentation. Anybody can do that, right? And so let me encourage you as you're interacting with people, don't hesitate to invite them. If inviting them to your home is too much, here's what you do. Invite them here. I can't tell you how many times a woman got invited here who didn't know the Lord, and the other women found out about her, and just got around her, found out what the needs were, and just loved her and served her and blessed her and befriended her. And what they see is Christ. It's what it means that we are Christ's body They will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. They will know that you belong to me by the love that you have for each other and for those around you. They'll know. They'll know. So don't hesitate to invite people to come to church. Don't hesitate to invite people to your home. I mean, there are times when that would be inappropriate. But I don't think we err too much on that side. We err too much on not inviting people in. Now, notice the exchange that happened between Nathaniel and Jesus, verses 47 and 48. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him, and he said to him, said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit or no guile. I, th- I think there may be a little play on words here. Israelite, this is Israel, whose previous name was Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver. And so maybe Jesus is saying, look, here is an Israelite who doesn't deceive. This is an Israelite indeed. This is an Israelite who's better than the father of Israel, who was Jacob. Maybe. Maybe. It's interesting to think about anyway. So what do we see here? Nathaniel answers him, Rabbi? Rabbi, you are the son of God. Now, push the hold button. Jump to John chapter 20. John says, not literally, just listen to me. John says, in your mind, jump to John 20. John says, these things I have written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the what? Son of God. 
Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. All he did was come and see. But what did he see when he got there? He saw one who is omniscient. We've seen the accessible Christ, the assertive Christ. This is the omniscient Christ. I saw you. Jesus not only knew Nathanael before they met, he actually saw him under the fig tree when Philip called him. Because Philip was saying, listen, you've got to meet him. You've got to meet him. Just follow me. You've got to meet this man. And no doubt he told him all kinds of things. Let me tell you what Andrew said. Let me tell you what John says. We went to Simon Peter. Even he believes. And now Philip, Philip, I, Philip says, I, I can't even begin to describe to you what this guy is like. You've got to come and see. And the first thing Jesus says is, oh, I know you, Philip. Before Philip called, I mean, uh, Nathaniel, before Philip called you, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you. That's impossible. I'm here? Rabbi, my friends must be right. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It's amazing. It's amazing. Jesus knew. He saw. This, the theologians call this omniscience. To know everything. And no doubt tapping into his right and the Father's right of omnipresence. He not only knew it, he saw it. It might not sound like much proof to you. I mean, if someone had just said that to you, but there was so much more behind this. There was the testimony of his friends. There was the testimony of John the Baptist. There was the testimony of God himself at Jesus' baptism who said, this is my beloved son. And it's as if Nathaniel pulls all of that together and he gets it. You are the king of Israel. I mean, what else could he conclude? Normal people are not omniscient. Normal people are not omniscient. Although sometimes I think my wife is omniscient. (laughs) And I know my children think that. How does she know? Jesus was omniscient. Philip had already told Nathaniel, and so had Peter and John and Andrew, and already been convinced that he's the Messiah. All Nathaniel needed was a little evidence. And Jesus was all too happy to supply. And so we see the accessible Christ, the assertive Christ, the omniscient Christ, and lastly... The glory of Christ. This is great. Notice how Jesus responds to Nathanael. Because I said that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's Jesus saying? Let me tell you what he's saying and then I'll prove it. Okay? What Jesus is saying is this. Nathaniel, one day, you and these other guys, you will see me come down in the clouds of glory surrounded by God's holy angels and take the throne of my servant David and rule over the peoples and tribes and nations and every tongue. Someday you will see that. You've heard the story of Jacob laying on the ground with a stone for his pillow and he wakes up in the middle of the night, as it were, and he sees a a ladder stretching from the ground to heaven and the angels of God walking up and down on it. That's nothing compared to what you will see when I come back in clouds of glory with all the holy angels. So why do you think he's saying that? Because of the name he uses of himself. What he calls himself, his favorite name for himself, Son of Man. I know we've discussed this before. You need to have this burned into your mind so that every time you hear him say, Son of Man, you know what he's talking about. There are some who will say, Listen, Jesus is just saying, Look, I'm, I'm human. I'm human. And that's true, he was human. He was. Everything that a man is, he was, minus sin. Whatever is essentially 
the definition of man Jesus was. But that's not what son of man means. It is a technical term. We get the meaning, as you know, from all the way back in Daniel chapter 7. So turn there. Daniel chapter 7. Major prophet. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's having a vision. One of them. He just had a vision of the Ancient of Days, starting in verse 9. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. And then in verse 13, here's what we find. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given, watch this, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations of every man, the men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You think what Jacob experienced was amazing? It was. But it's nothing compared to what you will see one day when I return with the angels of God at my side. This, beloved, is the eschatological glory of Christ. While we live on earth, while he lived on earth, he offered himself as a humble servant. It's amazing in that Mark 6 passage, or Mark 10, um, 46, where he says this, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for for many. You know what what gives weight to that, that verse? This text. Daniel 7. Son of Man did not come to be served. Well, the prophecy is that every person... Every tribe, every people, every language, all men, all nations will serve him. Not when he came the first time. I've not come to be served. I've come to serve and to give my life a ransom for the many. However, when I return, glory, majesty, dominion, authority, power, rule, might, awesome. And he will reign as king and king, king of kings and lord of lords, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Do you see why accessibility is so amazing? It's because we now have access to this. This, this God who is not only accessible but assertive and omniscient and more than that, infinitely glorious. You need a ballast in your little boat today. You're looking at circumstances you can't control. Listen, the four rules of communication aren't going to help you that much. What you need is God in your boat. You got to know him. You got to know him. You got to know him. That's why our purpose statement for our church is this. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things, to the glory of God, in the joy of all peoples. We don't exist to, to simply to, to explain principles that are somewhat based on the Bible. That's not why we're here. We exist to introduce people to God. And so every time we come to the scriptures, we say, What does it tell me about God? What does it tell me about God? What does it tell me about Christ? We need him. Do you, see it? Do you see it, beloved? Do you see what John wants us to understand about Jesus? Let's just review here in chapter 1. John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. Andrew met him and concluded that he is the Messiah, verse 41. Philip met him and concluded that he is the one of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, verse 45. Nathanael meets him and concludes that he is the son of God and the king of Israel. And Jesus concluded by explaining that he is the promised son of man who will one day come in the clouds with the very angels of holy, almighty God. This is who Jesus is. 
This is who Jesus is. And beloved, we are only touching the fringes. These are just a few of the excellencies of Christ. And the message is simple. Jesus is worthy of your faith. He's worthy of your hope. He's worthy of your adoration. He's worthy of your submission. He's worthy of your worship. He is your God, whether you bow or not. Because one day every knee will bow. And one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Exhortation, simple. Trust him. Believe him. Offer your life to him and you will discover that he already has set his affection upon you from before the foundation of the world. What do we learn about Jesus? This is the accessible Christ. But this is also the assertive Christ who is the omniscient Christ. He's the glorious Christ. And once your soul gets a glimpse of the excellencies of this Christ, your life will never be the same. Father, we praise you for this text of Scripture because it reveals to us something of the person that we love more than anything and that we long to love more than anything. We confess, Father, that the appeals of the world are strong. And yet by your grace, you have put a love in our hearts for the Lord Jesus Christ that transcends every sin. And so that you always call us back to repentance. You always call us back to trust and faith in him. No, Father, I, this has not been a traditional gospel presentation. But, oh, Father, I pray for anyone in this room who is yet to bow the knee before you and to own the fact that the only thing they have to offer you is their sin. Oh, Father, save them by your grace. Give them a heart that longs to be reconciled with God, a heart that is willing to submit to the lordship of Christ, a heart that desires to please him more than anything, a heart that would hate sin and love righteousness. Father, do that saving work now in them, we pray, for your great glory and for our great joy. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.